Today we're going to see what's so special about being a Baptist. What's so special about being a Baptist? How many of you have a Baptist background? The first experience you had with the Christian faith was, was with a uh, Baptist denomination. Okay? About half of you. The rest of you grew up in some other kind of denomination. So I think it would be helpful for us to to explain why we call ourselves Baptist over against all other denominations. And in order to facilitate this type of learning, I want to use the common acrostic that you may have heard of, and that is um, that uses the first letters um, of the word Baptist. Okay, but before we uh, we do that, let's let's just get a little history on where the Baptists came from, because there are several different views of where they came from. The first view is called the uh, Succession of Churches view. Any of you ever heard of the, the book called The Trail of Blood or a little pamphlet called The Trail of Blood? It basically tries to take um, John the Baptist, the original Baptist, and, and tracks the Baptist faith all the way up until our current era. And they basically um, make a lot of assumptions in doing so and the reason that they're doing is, this is try to make it as biblical as possible. They're trying to say that Baptists are the most biblical. And while I agree with them that they are the most biblical, I would disagree that, that um, they, they can be tracked all the way back to the early church. Because you can think of times throughout history when, when uh, there were no Baptist uh, remnant. There was no Baptist at all, in fact. And... Uh, so what what happens is they force their views onto um, other people. So they they try to, to go throughout history and they find these little groups of people that aren't exactly called Baptists, but hey, that's probably us. And uh, these groups are called uh, the Donatists, the Walden, Waldenses, and and others. And uh, obviously, it, it uses a lot of assumptions. When we get into our church history portion of this uh, study down the road. Uh, We'll talk more in detail about that. So that's a succession of churches view. There's also a succession of principles view. And this basically traces the Baptist church back to Christ, but instead of uh, tracking it through all these different types of churches, they track it through all these different types of principles. Instead of the trail of blood, it's the trail of truth. And uh, this also uses a lot of assumptions. Um, basically, the Baptists didn't come into existence until the 1600s. And so, uh, we'll, we'll see where exactly they came from. But some people say that they would come, and this is the third view, some people say that they came from the Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists were very similar to the Baptists in a lot of ways. However, they came from an isolationist type group. In fact, the, the Mennonite uh the Mennonite group came out of that same uh, group as the Anabaptists did. So they were Protestant, but they, they tended to be more isolationist and pacifist in general. And uh, the Baptists, however, did not come from that, from that line. They came from the Puritans, the Puritans in the 17th century. And this was not, uh, the Baptist denomination was not an invention or a new religion necessarily, but it was really just a rediscovery of New Testament principles. They went back to the Bible as the authority and they determined what is it that God says should be a part of a local church. So they, they rediscovered New Testament principles. It was not a religion formed 
and uh, whose beliefs were imposed upon the New Testament. It wasn't like, hey, this is what we want to do. Now let's force this on what the New Testament says. Instead, it was uh, something that was derived from. See, there's a difference then, okay, these are my ideas. This is what I'm going to tell the Scriptures I think it is. There's a difference between that and understanding the Scriptures and then determining how we should believe and practice based on that. That's where the Baptist came from. So I think that's a good history to start with. The first letter there that you see is, is B in the word Baptists. Oh. And the B stands for Biblical Authority. Biblical authority. There's four main um, subsections to this idea of biblical authority. First of all, the Bible is inspired. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Biblical authority. Baptists have as their authority the Word of God. There is no one outside of um, the local church or the Bible itself that is the authority over someone who is a Baptist. The Bible is its authority. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. First of all, the Bible is inspired. Paul writes, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is sufficient. It can and will provide everything that is necessary for life and godliness. And since the entire Bible is inspired by God, then the Bible is relevant and it has authority over us. So, it, this makes sense to those of us who understand it, that God is our authority. God wrote the Scriptures, so the Scriptures are our authority. Okay, this is how God speaks to us. And we can be confident that the Bible is true because John 17:17 17, 17 says, "Your word is truth." This is Jesus talking to God in his prayer. He says, "Your word is true." That is that is the Bible is inerrant, inerrant. It is without error. God is truth. God wrote the word, therefore his word is truth. There is no error in the Bible. So all of His words are true. But not only is it inerrant, it's also infallible. This is a little bit different. Inerrant means to be without error. Infallible means incapable of making an error. That is, the Bible can never fail in its statements. It has absolute authority. So it cannot be contradicted in any way. The Bible is true. So we can rest that Everything that we glean from the Scriptures is true. By the way, when we say that the Bible is inspired, that is, that, that it is God-breathed and none of it has any error, we are speaking about the Bible in its original form, okay, as it was written in its original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic. Okay, So your Bible in front of you does not contain every exact Word of God. And if you've ever... If you've ever um, uh, studied languages, if you've ever uh, learned another language, you understand that there's no such thing as a one-for-one -one translation, meaning you can't take one Greek word and turn it into one English word. There's not a one-for-one -one translation usually. 
there's always some overlap or you've got to understand what it means in that context. So that's why we have tr- different translations. And I would suggest that in the, in the group of translations as a whole, we have the Word of God. Okay? No, spe- no one specific translation has every single word directly from God's mouth. But I would say as a whole, when you, when you put together a, a, a group of solid translations, you know, like the King James Version is a good translation, the New American Standard Version is a good translation, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, lots of good translations, and uh, not one of them has all the words of God. Now, our first thought is, oh boy, how can we trust it if, if we know that there's some errors in it? Well, I would uh, just uh, caution you that, that only less than 5% of, of the Word of God is, is really um, argued over. Meaning, when, when scholars look at the original languages and translate it into the English language, it's not, they're not questioning whether or not God, Jesus Christ died for, for all mankind. They're not questioning whether or not God really is the creator of the universe. They're questioning things like, did this verse start with uh, the word but or the word for? Or should we even include that word in there? Should we include the word therefore in there? Or is it already understood? So these people make it their living, really, to study languages and to understand um, what it meant then and then what it means now. And so you have uh, a lot of different translations, but basically we can be confident that what we have is the Word of God. Okay, so I don't want you to sit down and go, hmm, I wonder if this is one of the words that they were arguing over. Okay, I wouldn't worry about that because uh, all of its statements put together, I would say, are the Word of God. But if we wanted to look at, at one specific word, there may be some conjunctions or other words that may be argued over. Um, actually, an example that I was thinking of this morning was uh, when Paul said, uh, to those of you, or grace to you uh, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, and in some other translations say, your Lord, your Lord Jesus Christ. So to me, that, that doesn't really make a difference. It's still the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's your or our is, is the point. Uh, that, that is argued over. Okay, so the Bible is infallible. It is incapable of making error. Number four, the Bible is irreplaceable. There is nothing that can replace God's Word. Nothing can stand above it. Nothing is its authority. There's nothing that, that can be put on top of the Word of God and say, this is really what we should follow. Okay, and obviously if you can think of other religions, you can think that, that that's... a uh, you really need this other person or this other uh, organization above the Word of God in order to understand the Word of God. And as we'll see later, uh, we will not. We don't. We don't need anything other than the Holy Spirit in order to understand the Word of God. All right. So what is what does this mean for us if the Bible is our authority? Well, I would suggest to you that our commitment as a church is that the Word of God will be central. The Word of God will be central. The goal of each of our services is to exalt God and to exalt His Son, Jesus Christ. And we do this through the ministry of the Word. 
we exalt His Word. Every aspect of our, our worship should be governed by the Word of God. It should be that our songs are God-centered songs, our Word-centered songs. It should be that our fellowship is, is, um, is based on Word-centered fellowship. It is trying to edify one another because of the truth that we've learned from the Word of God. The reading of Scripture, the preaching, the prayer, everything in our services should be central, should be centered around the Word of God. So the Bible is our authority. This, this sets us apart from many other denominations as Baptists. Okay, any questions on that section? All right, good. Autonomy of the local church is the next one. Autonomy of the local church. There are four main systems that churches use to govern uh, their church bodies. Okay, the first one you probably know is the papal system the papal system where the Pope is in charge. The church's ultimate authority resides in whom? It resides in the Pope. The Pope is uh, the supposed authoritative successor all the way from the apostles. He's been a successor from Peter who's, who's passed it on to whomever all the way to Pope whoever. Okay, so that's the papal system. So the, the local church is subservient to the Pope's, um, the Pope's thoughts, the Pope's ideas, the Pope's teaching, the Pope's authority. second type of system is called the Episcopalian system. This is where the church's ultimate authority resides in the bishops. There's, also, there's often a succession of bishops all the way back to the apostles. Similar to the succession of Pope idea, this is bishops instead. Then you have the Presbyterian system. This is where the church's ultimate authority resides in the elders or the rulers of the church. And you have you have not only just those men inside the church, but then on top of that you have sessions and presbyteries and synods and general assemblies. And so the church is basically, they have to um, submit their doctrine, not to the Word of God necessarily, but to what all these other people are saying. Okay, All these presbyteries, all these other rulers. So our church, our church's system is basically that the congregation rules the, uh, the local church. And that is that the church's ultimate authority resides in the local church. We do not go outside of anyone. That's why we call it the autonomy. It's the independence of the local church. We don't have to go to some association. We don't have to go to some other uh, ruler to try to determine what the Bible says. We understand it for ourselves and we rule based on that. So that means that no other person or organization is over the local church. As Baptists, that's the way that we uh, teach and, and live. Now, you might think that, well, as a member of the church, um, I don't really rule the church. I mean, technically, it, it seems like the pastor is the one that rules the church. But but I would suggest to you that it's it's similar to the way that we vote for a president, right? The, the president is, is uh, no more special than any other person in society. Okay? He's just in a different position. You see, when he goes to vote, does he have more votes than you and I have? No, he has one vote, just like all of us. We're the ones who put him into power. Okay? We determine whether or not he should be the president. Now, hopefully, we didn't determine who our president was, but 
Um, you get you get the idea. And now he is he is a what is he? He's a servant of our country, right? He's supposed to to do what the people want. That's the idea. The same thing is true about the pastor. However, it's a little bit different because obviously um, the pastor's ultimate authority is not to, uh, to find out what the people want and then do it. It's to find out what Christ wants. But we as a body should be trying to find out what is pleasing to the Lord and then we should be choosing people in leadership who will lead us in that way. And then as a result, we should be following uh, what the Scriptures teach and that's what that the, the pastor should be doing. So, uh, this is the Scriptural model. In fact, if we looked at... Well, let's turn there. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You're not too far from there. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Who is it that Paul, James, Peter, John... The, the, who did they write their epistles to? Did they write them to individuals? I mean, occasionally you have Titus, Philemon, Timothy. But in general, who do they write them to? The churches. Right? And that's because the congregation is, is, is uh, the group of people who should be ruling the local church. And Paul constantly talked about believers who were at these churches. He was, he was wanting these... Even when he wrote to individuals, he would say, I want you to read these letters to the churches. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That is not the verse I was looking for. Um, I'm looking for the one that says that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Okay, so I gave you the wrong verse there, but it's in there. Okay, so our commitment as a congregation should be to elect our own officers, leaders, and messengers who will, uh, who will lead the church in accordance with the Scriptures. We should, as a church, guard the ordinances to make sure that people who are taking part in those ordinances are believers. We should maintain pure doctrine. We should maintain unity, unity among our body. 1 Timothy 3.15. You can write that down on your... Um, See, this paper is not inspired. Okay. All right. Number th- number three, the the P there in Baptist is for priesthood of all believers. Priest of priesthood of all believers, and this kind of speaks to to our authority, and that is that the scriptures have direct access to God. You see, in the papal system, a person cannot go directly to God. Who do they go through? They go through their priest. Okay, they have to go to the church in order to confess their sin. They have to have the priest pray certain prayers for them and so on. But in the, in the Baptist church, how we understand the Scriptures being taught is that each believer, each and every believer, have direct access to God. We can go to God in prayer not having to use any other human means. And so that means that, that, um, that we have our own priesthood. We are called believer priests. Okay, we, Jesus Christ, because of His death, has made us a priest in a sense so that we can have direct access to God. This also affects our access to other believers. And it affects our access to other believers, our relationship to other believers in three ways. One is um, our, we have a responsibility to minister to other believers, to give of ourselves. 
Number two, we have a responsibility to live a holy life. Okay, Because we are uh, priests set apart by God, a peculiar people, uh, a special people, we are to live a holy life, a separated life. And number three, we should we have a responsibility to offer sacrifice, sacrifices of ourselves, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I, that we give of our bodies as a living sacrifice. We should also give sacrifices of praise, and that's what we do in, in each worship service, and hopefully you do personally. It's not something that we just come together as a church to do, that we praise God, but that we do it as individuals. And then also we should give a sacrifice of our gifts. All right, we don't have time to go into all those, but uh, does anyone have any questions on the autonomy of the local church or the priesthood of all believers? Okay, good. Next is the two ordinances. Two ordinances. We have, what are the two ordinances that we practice in the, in the local church, in the Baptist church? Right. So it would be on your sheets, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, also known as communion. These are two ordinances that were instituted by Christ. And let me give for, to you what, constitute, what constitutes an ordinance. What, what, how do we determine what a legitimate ordinance is? Because obviously in the, in the Catholic Church, how many ordinances do they have? Does anyone know? Seven. And what are they? They do have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Do you think of any of the other ones? Matrimony, exactly. What is it? Last rites. You have the extreme unction, whatever that is. That's the last rites? Okay. Uh, the Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper. You have penance, you have confirmation, and you have ordination. Okay, These are all um, what they would consider to be legitimate church ordinances. However, um, and there are other churches, by the way, that, that believe that foot washing is an ordinance. Anyone want to start that one here at this church? No? Okay. Um, foot washing or the love feast, anointing with oil, and, uh, and so on. But we, we understand that there are two um, ordinances, and th- these are the four reasons why. Number one, if it is a legitimate ordinance, it has to be a symbol of saving faith. It has to be a symbol of saving faith. You see, baptism is, is not a, a way in which we receive saving faith. When we get baptized, it doesn't mean that we become saved. What is it? It's a picture. Exactly. It's a perfect word. It's a picture of us being buried to our sin or buried just like Jesus Christ was buried. Okay, There's actually two pictures there. And then being raised in newness of life so that we are uh, now free from the bondage of sin. No longer are we slaves to sin like we were as a, a child of Satan. Okay, so baptism and obviously the Lord's Supper is also a symbol of saving faith that Jesus Christ died for us. So we, we uh, understand that when we take that bread and we take that cup, we're thinking about what Jesus Christ did for us in salvation. So number one, symbol of saving faith. Number two, it was authorized by Christ. Okay? It was authorized by Christ. In the Gospels, um, Jesus Christ told His disciples in Matthew chapter 28, He said, Go into all the world and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. 
Okay, He tells them that they must be baptized. In fact, uh, the same thing is true about the Lord's Supper because when He was having the Lord's Supper with His disciples on that final night, He said, do this in remembrance of Me. Continue to, to, to keep this practice so authorized by Christ. Number three, it's commanded in the Gospels or the Epistles. Okay, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that as often as you meet together, that you should, uh, or not as often as you, but, but as you meet together, whenever that is, that you should um, practice the Lord's Supper. Um, and then number four, it, it should have been practiced by the early church. And we find instances of both baptism and the Lord's Supper in the early church. And what that does for us is that is that um, eliminates all these other things that are out there on the fringe that we may think are legitimate ordinances. Okay, foot washing was not something that was practiced in the early church. Okay, it was something that was done by Christ, and um, and uh, it was not something that was. Uh, um, necessarily authorized by Christ or commanded in the gospel, so we don't practice that as an ordinance. So I, I spoke about um, the picture of baptism. Let me now speak about the picture of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is basically that picture of Christ's work on the cross. And at our church, what we do is we practice close communion. Okay, and you hear this every time we have the Lord's Supper. That means that a person must be saved baptized and a member of a church of life like faith and practice. And that's important because some people think that, hey, if you're saved, how can you withhold the Lord's Supper from me? I mean, I deserve to have the Lord's Supper too. But technically, what that does is, first of all, every time the Lord's Supper is practiced in the New Testament, it is practiced by those who are members of the local church. Now, obviously not in the Gospels because there weren't any churches at that time, but every time you find it in Acts, and, and the epistles, it's always in the context of the local church, which implies that you should be a member of that church. You should be an active member of that church. And not only that, um, what, it, what happens is if we open up the Lord's table to everybody who wants it or everybody who is a Christian, um, it gives no... It gives no um, centrality to or necessity for membership, for church membership. See, a person could be uh, legitimately saved, but they, didn't, they don't want to follow the Lord in scriptural baptism. They don't want to join a church. They want to just uh, live on their kind of like isolated um, uh, uh, place of, of worship. And what happens is, is it, it pulls away or it takes away from the necessity of church membership. You see, every believer should be baptized. Every believer should be a member of a local church because God's work primarily, although we do have direct access to God, and as we'll see, we have the ability to interpret Scriptures on our own, um, you cannot legitimately and genuinely grow apart from a local church. That is where God's program is. In fact, in the, in the Gospels, it is implied, it is assumed that every person is a part of the local church. And we talked about that when we, uh, we talked about why join a church two weeks ago. Okay, so any questions on the two ordinances?
Yeah, um, it it was for sure, but I think there is also some other um, uh, deeper meaning to it, meaning I think uh, Christ did it in order to show how humble He was. That Christ, I mean, the King of the universe, comes and kneels down and washes these uh, dirty men's feet. So I think there was more to it, but I wouldn't go as far as to say that it would be something that we all have to practice in order to be in obedience with Christ. All right, the I there stands for individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty has to do with the right of a believer to competently interpret the Scriptures. Okay, that's because we as believers have the mind of Christ. We have the ability to appraise all things. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this goes back to not needing some uh, papal system or some um, association to be able to tell us what we need to think. Um, we have the ability to interpret the Scriptures on our own. So we don't have to wait till we come to church on Sunday to, to start digging into the Scriptures. Now, I would, I would caution you that if that's the only time that you are looking at the Scriptures, that's a problem on your own, that is. And that's why I say church membership is so important because it gives you accountability too as well because um, it, it helps when, when you bring up an idea that, hey, this is what I think the Scriptures mean, other people who have been studying that same passage will say, no, I don't think that's what it means at all. And so it gives accountability and it helps us as as a whole to to understand the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter two verse fourteen says, "But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things; yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." As believers, we have the mind of Christ. We have the ability to appraise all things. So what is the difference between priesthood of all believers and individual soul liberty? Did, it, did you catch the difference there? What is priesthood of the believers? This is our access to God more through prayer. Okay? Individual soul liberty has more our understanding of the Scriptures. Okay, so there is a difference. Because as unbelievers, yeah, we can read these words, but we can't understand them. We, can't, we can understand that there are sentences and put together in paragraphs and all that, just like any other book, but we can't understand the significance of them. And that's because as unbelievers, we are hostile, verse 14, we're hostile towards the things of God. They are foolishness to us. We don't want to, to understand them. We don't want to obey them. And there are scholars who are complete reprobates, who are complete uh, pagans, who do not understand the Scriptures. They can understand how the sentences flow together, but they don't understand the significance, what it means for them. And that can only happen with believers. And that is a great benefit of um, being a believer. And so as a church, as a Baptist church, we teach and understand that people do not have to go to some other authority to try to to uh, determine what the Scriptures mean. All right, any questions on that? We've got three more and we've got to go quick. All right, the next is saved church membership. Saved church membership. The church simply means 
that members are saved out of the world and they are saved to God. Church members are saved out of the world and to God. That is the point. That's what I was saying earlier is that that as as believers, we're not just saved out to an island where we can just exist on our own. We are saved out of the world and the way that we do that is by coming uh, to the local church and being a member of it. And the importance of each member being saved is this. There are two main things. One is it's a reflection of their own condition. A person who is a member of their of a church, if a church says, yes, I think you're saved, so come and join us, now it reflects on that person uh, personally. They can say, well, you know what? That church thinks that I'm a Christian, so I must be a Christian. And... Uh, so a person a person that has joined the the church may think that they're saved and it may give them some false assurance of salvation. That's why we have to be very careful about who we allow into the local church. This is not just hey wide open. Now this is I'm talking about church membership by the way. Okay, I'm not talking about who can come to our services. I'm talking about genuine church membership. When a person joins our church, they should be a believer. But not only does it reflect on their own condition that, hey, I think I'm saved, it also reflects on our church as a whole because when that person, let's say an unsaved person, comes in, joins our church, and then goes out into the world and lives like the world, and the world finds out that they go to our church, what does that do? That's a reflection on our church. that, Or it's a reflection on our Savior, which is even worse, right? Um, because it says, hey, that person is a member of that church, that must be what it's like to be a believer. And you know what? It's no different from how I live. And that's why it's so critical that we be very careful to only allow saved people to join our church. Okay? Obviously, we want to see our church grow. Obviously, we want to see more people add to the church. But not at the expense of um, of their false assurance and our Savior's reputation. We have to be very careful in that regard. So, as a, as a church, we should be committed, and we are committed, to carefully guarding the front door of the church. And that, when I say that, I'm speaking of church membership. We have to be carefully guarding it. We should not be willing to allow anyone to join our church in membership unless they have a um, a, a genuine... Uh, profession of faith. Now, that means that they should have a credible testimony of salvation and they should be scripturally baptized. Now, obviously, we can't guard against every single person. There will be people, Paul says, that come into our midst and, uh, and, and draw people away. We can't guard against every single person. Some people come in as wolves in sheep's clothing and, and we can be deceived. Okay, But that doesn't that doesn't give us a free pass to just allow whoever we want to in. Just because, hey, we, we need some more money. Or, hey, we'd like to see the pews filled. We have to be careful. We have to be guarded. And we have to be committed to purity and unity. Let me get to the two offices, and, and that, which is the next one. And then we'll finish up with the last one. All right, two offices in the local church, and that is pastor and deacons. Okay, pastor and deacons. There are no other permanent offices mentioned in the New Testament. Now, the pastor's job is to deal primarily with oversight, 
And while he holds the highest office in the church, similar to the president, he is simply just elected by the people of the church, and he's a servant of the people. There's no, just as there's no president's president, there's no pastor's pastor. I don't have to answer to another person. Okay, I answer to you as a congregation. And so there's no authority, as we talked about with the autonomy of the local church, there's no authority outside of the local church that is over a pastor. Um, all of his authority resides in the Scripture and in the congregation. All right, and then there's also the deacons. The de- deacons deal primarily with service. And if you remember from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, when they were first instituted, the deacons were first instituted, the job of the deacons was basically to take take off of the plate of the pastor certain responsibilities so that the pastor and the elders in the church could give themselves to teaching the God, teaching the word and praying okay because when when a pastor starts um, focusing too much on um, administrative responsibilities or even things that are good like you know taking care of widows in that case um, then he, then what happens is the uh, teaching and the preaching start to lack and the, the praying for the church begins to lack and as a result, God's favor um, is not as strong as it would be. All right, last one is separation. Separation. As Baptists, we are separated, I said, from the world and to God, but we're separated in three ways. First of all, each of us have personal separation. We should be separated from worldliness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 talks about do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Anyone who loves the world, is, the love of the Father is not in him. So as believers, as individual believers, we are separated personally from the world. We're also separated from disobedient brothers. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and following um, speaks about that. That if a person is disobedient, we should separate ourselves from them or we should separate that person from us. All right, and then as a church, we are also separated. That means we're separated from other churches who deny the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Or if they are continually disobedient to the Word of God, we should not be um, joining in fellowship with them. That is uh, what we've been called to do. Second John chapter one, verses nine through eleven. All right, and then also we are separated civilly. That is from the state. Jesus says, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar." Caesar's and to God what is God's. Alright, and so that means that the church is not over the state, the state is not over the church, the church is not alongside the state. Rather, we have a free church and a free state. We operate completely separate, separately from the state. They are not our authority. Um, so, when it comes to this idea of separation, I want to hit this and I'll be done. Alright, when it comes to this idea of separation, we often think, why can't we just why can't we just agree with these people and allow them to fellowship with us? What's the big deal? Why can't we just let them... Um, why can't we just have fellowship with this church or that church? It's not how great of things they teach or, or how much they love God. You know what the issue is? How much do they tolerate? How much are they willing to tolerate? If they're willing to tolerate sin and disobedience to God or if they are willing to tolerate um, going against the fundamentals of the Scriptures, we cannot interact with them on a, uh, a church level. And that doesn't mean that we can't be on their softball team or we can't 
you know, we can't go out to lunch with them or something like that. It means that that we should not be joining forces with them uh, just as we would not join forces with the, the ECT, the Evangelicals and Catholics together. Let's all hold hands. Hey, let's not talk about our differences. Let's talk about what we agree on. Okay, the same thing is true about even other Baptist churches. Some other Baptist churches are disobedient to God. They do not understand or follow the fundamentals of the faith. And as a result, they tolerate more than they should. And so we need to be careful about, about interacting or associating with them. Okay, Paul says to, to pull away from that sort of unbelieving um, or a person who's not practicing the truths of the Scripture. All right, any questions? All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for this time. Thank You for the heritage that we have as a Baptist church. We're thankful for the men who um, uh, started this church and who have um, continued it. Thank You for the, the families, the men and ladies over the years who have been faithful to Your Word and are careful about upholding it. And um, we pray that You'd help us to be faithful to Your Word and to uh, understand and make it our final authority. And we pray now that you'd help us as we worship you to be honoring and pleasing to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.